Welcome to this latest edition of the Positive Populist Podcast. All the P's in there, that sometimes hard to listen to. Anyway, the Positive Populist Podcast, and so exciting, our guest today, Sarah Carter. It's so great to be here, Steve. All right, you don't know where this is going to go, but it's going to be fun. I'm excited. This is, sounds like fun. I can't wait. I'm exactly. just like, what is the first question? The first is question is be? the same for all the guests, and then we can take it in whatever direction you want. But the first question is, Sarah Carter, are you a positive populist? <laughs> I'm very positive. Am I a populist? I don't know. Maybe yes. No, I don't know. What You're am definitely I? Definitely positive. Well, exactly. Well, we're going to find definitely that out. Definitely but... positive. I'm always looking at the glass half full, I hope. Sounds great. So I that's what I felt. I feel that from you. That's why I always love having you as a guest on, our, on our show on Fox News. I try. I try. But, not, o- not always, but the majority of the time. 95%. I want to be completely truthful here. There is a 5% glass half empty situation. yes totally I, I get that the whole time especially sometimes encountering the you know airline and travel system in america that's often <laughs> that's which I, anyway whatever we won't go into that so tell me about the, the your reaction to the second word populist just not whether you're for it just what does it conjure up for what does it make you think of well it it connotates i, I guess if you're thinking about a populist uh, president it connotates all those ideas of we hear about trump right we Mm -hmm. hear about trump being the populist president the president of the people the president for the people the populist ideas um pushing those forward but i you know i have a tendency to feel like right now what's happening in the united states there's this such divisiveness and such vitriol and I, I've never, for a second, for a second, I thought maybe things are going to shift. Maybe things will change. We heard what happened with AOC, right? Yeah. Could she be considered a populist yeah, socialist? Yeah, people say that, exactly. Right? So I don't want to say that, am I a populist? No, but what does that mean? What does that really mean when we dig we dig down deep? And So let me give you an example. I, yeah. I really thought that when... Um, you know, we heard Ocasio-Cortez, we mm-hmm. hear these rantings of hers, uh, we heard Ilhan Omar, you know, uh, basically uh, use these uh, anti-Semitic tropes. And I thought to myself, well, this is definitely going to be a backlash. This mm-hmm. is this is definitely not good for the Democrats, and I still don't believe it is. Mm-hmm. But what was so strange was the amount of support right. that rose up mm-hmm. from the grassroots or from care or from progressive groups that are out there that are saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, Ilhan, don't apologize for your remarks. Don't cow down to Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic leader, um, who, by the way, doesn't appear to be a populist whatsoever, <laughs> right. you know, by any, by any term. We're going to stand by you and now you're going to fight her. And so all of a sudden I said, I thought to myself, things aren't going to get better people aren't going to reason here they're going to go with emotion mm. and emotion on both sides for me can be extraordinarily dangerous right mm. because you take away from analyzing what's really happening in the system the policies uh the effect of those policies good and bad mm-hmm. on the nation and so then the populist and this is just my perception yeah, of it yeah. becomes more important right than the ideas behind them and that's Honestly, Steve, that's what's really frightening to me. That's really interesting. You know, another thing I love hearing you talk about these things because I watch you all the time, and I'm sure a lot of lot of our listeners will, um, and particularly in the last couple of years on Hannity, on Sean Hannity's program, where you just had this relentless and forensic focus on exposing the 
the deep state and and how it has responded to the emergence of Donald Trump as a populist candidate. And so we see you in that context a lot. And you've got all the information and you report on it so thoroughly. And of course, beyond Sean Hannity's program, you're doing your own reporting. But what is interesting to hear you talk about things that aren't just that yes. and get into broader political questions. I just it's, it's we don't normally hear that from you. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because the focus has always been for me as an investigative journalist was to expose the truth, to mm-hmm. be a watchdog. I mean, that was the, you know, when I took this job as a journalist many, many years ago, my job, and I remember great editors of mine would always say, look, Sarah, your job is to be the voice for the voiceless mm. and the watchdog over the government. So I have a That's lot. That's a great summary. It is. And what, it really is. Yeah. It really is. Because when I first started working, um, my big stories focused on youth in L.A., Los Angeles, right? Gangs, uh, the violence in our high schools. Uh, why were children killing each other and killing adults? It was very social issues. Interesting. Social issues that I felt needed to be reported on. We needed to find out where was the breakdown. And it wasn't just one person or one policy. It was a mirage of issues, right? Right. From the schools to the families uh, to the system, uh, all the way from the federal level to the state level to the school level. And we tried to analyze it in that perspective. And but but not just by throwing out numbers and research. It was about talking to the people, the voice for those who are voiceless, the children themselves. What's going on at your school? How come you leave every day at lunch? Well, you know, we leave every day at lunch because we can't even use the restrooms because they're so filthy. No one ever cleans them. I said, is that really true? I I went into the schools and there was just a mess. I would go back day after day to see if somebody would clean it. I literally saw feces on one bathroom stall all over the walls that lasted for more than a week and they still didn't clean it up until I pointed it out to them. Oh my gosh. And um, this was years ago, you know, this was years ago. And then there were stories, um, you know, where I, I, I talked to the parents. What's going on here? Is the school not communicating with you? I would go into the classrooms. I could tell you this. I won't. Um, and I think, it. Uh, well, I could go ahead and tell you it was focus was on Pomona Unified School District uh-huh. at the time. And I went in and I literally sat in classrooms with the students. Not one teacher would ask me, who are you? What are you <gasps> doing in the classroom? You just walked in. I walked on sat- campus, sat right. in the classroom, watched teachers send emails. And th- remember, I'm not putting this on the school district now it has changed tremendously but during that time period when i covered these stories which was jamie's story i watched teachers sending emails not paying attention she was the young girl uh, jamie ruiz at the time now Mm -hmm. she's a phenomenal woman and mother and she has done an incredible uh thing she turned her life into something spectacular has beautiful kids but she was friends actually at that time with a young boy who had killed an irwindale police officer Mm. and he was 15 years old. His name was Yogi. He was actually imprisoned for life. He he's serving life for his uh, for committing the murder, and um, that's what spawned those series of stories for me. I but think- how did you? I mean, this is so fascinating. Um, how did you get into it? What was the starting point for you? For me, it was. We can't just report people as numbers. And I remember going but to my editor. But even before that, you're, you're already starting with reporting. Oh, I mean, like, where, you mean, I mean like really? where? Where did it yeah, start? Yeah, yeah. Like in my life? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. When I can't even remember a time I didn't care about people uh-huh. or social issues. And I think what happened was 
Um, my mother was a Cuban immigrant, uh, and I love my Cuban side of my family so much. In fact, I spent the whole day <laughs> with them in California last night after working, right. you know, just catching up and, and chit-chatting, practicing my Spanish once again. Um, but, you know, she was a Cuban immigrant that came from Cuba um, mm -hmm. in the late 1960s after Fidel Castro. My father was a World War II vet. At the age of six, um, my father, who was working for Lockheed Martin, Oh, in California, uh, was offered a job in Saudi Arabia and w he decided to take it. And uh -huh. at the age of six, I uh, packed my bags uh, with my mom and my brother and we left for the kingdom and spent um, almost eight years of my wow. childhood growing That's up. That's incredible. At such an interesting, like formative age. It is. And it changed everything for me. And I think I was so blessed because I had the most amazing mother and father and my mother especially, because here's a woman who came from communism, came to the United States, you know, and loved this country with all of her heart, became a citizen, um, used to tell people all the time, I'm not Cuban, I'm an American. She would I say that, that over and over I again. That so I'm much. not That's Cuban. How often, it's such an interesting connection because my parents are Hungarian, so the same mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? They were le leave, you know, getting away from that communist system. They ended up in England, that where I grew up. That's but right. But it's that same kind of love for freedom and and to me i feel so blessed because now i'm living here and you know we have been for seven years it's the ultimate antidote to communism america and it's so so i feel like i've really come home oh I, just, I, so when you're talking like that i just so relate to that yeah me too i relate to you too because it is a it is something that was deep in my heart right it's something and i and i loved the fact that my mother even though we went to a completely different place in the world and you got to think about the time period i mean this is years ago i'd give away my age if i <laughs> told you but uh with saudi arabia was still developing nation the kingdom yeah. was nowhere near what it is today i mean i would see the bedouins you know in the desert and then we would go to the bedouin um it was like a bedouin souk where they would trade with uh -huh. us and they don't do that anymore uh and my mom would take me to the marketplace. She would take me to the, a fish market by the Red Sea. She would take me to the souk. We would walk. We would talk to people. I loved the smells of the food, the uh -huh. familiarity. But it, she gave me a great appreciation for others uh -huh. and a even greater appreciation for what I have and for the freedoms we have in our country. Yeah. And that's something that... Did you go back and forth between Saudi Arabia and America at that time? Yeah, so yeah. we traveled on vacation back here, but right. the majority of the year we were in Saudi Arabia. Uh -huh. um, my father would also sometimes just say, we're not going back to the States this year until mm -hmm. later. We're going to take a trip to Africa or because right. we're closer. You know, it was cheaper for him to take us on vacation right. if yeah. we were leaving from there. And so I made friends all over the world. I can tell you that I was... And it's still one of my greatest vacations of all time was when we did go to Africa. We were in Kenya and I spent time on the Maasai Mara with the Maasai yeah. and with the children. And I, you know, I had brought all my things from Saudi Arabia to trade with them and I would play with them and in the Mara and I would lose my father in the villages. And I just, by the I, way, that's, I mean, there's so much, there, but that itself is, is, is not the typical experience. No, of, it's not. Of, you know, tourists visiting. The Maasai Mara. I mean, I've been to Kenya. You know, I've 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 had uh, trips like that, and we've I did a, you know a horse riding vacation there and stuff like that. But that sounds really interesting. How your parents must have had a different attitude to have you 
they did interact they, with people in that way oh my you know they did all the time my dad and my mom i look back and i think what were they crazy because i would just go off and do things like i was telling my husband the other day i was saying i remember swimming in the red sea when i was like seven years old i had my snorkels <laughs> and you know i was seven or eight years old out in the red sea and i i remember you could walk so far out in the water mm-hmm. it was so beautiful and i was by the way always looking for artifacts that which i never found but uh, i was always looking for artifacts artifacts with my brother somewhere in the Red Sea. The, and I would go over the edge of the coral reef. And in the Red Sea, when you reach the coral reef, mm-hmm. it's like a great abyss. It just drops and you just see all these fish. And then I thought, there were a lot of sharks out there. How did my dad let me swim all the way out wow. there? I was a good swimmer, but it is amazing. The rest, that's where I learned to dive. Did you? Scuba dive. Yeah. In the Red Sea. Oh, yeah. where, where, what part? We were at Sharm el Oh, wow. Yeah. So you understand how yeah. beautiful. Incredible, and, the colors, and it's amazing. And I still yeah. see it. But I, I think my father and my mother, you know, from a different time, they weren't certainly not helicopter parents. Right. I could not complain. If I complained, if I used the word, I'm bored, yeah. my father had a list I mean, a mile long of that would take away my boredom immediately. <laughs> your room is a mess. Go help your mom with the dinner. What are you complaining about? You have more than you don't. Great you remember? parenting tip there, by the way. It is. Love it that. is, and I I do that with my children. I, you know, we don't have time for you know complaining or we we do we all do. But then once we we have to moderate ourselves we have to stop ourselves before we become this victim you know i'm a victim this is so boring i need someone to entertain me no you know life is not all about being entertained it's about you know learning to take care of yourself learning to take care of others getting your chores done um and not complaining so much i could tell you this because my husband Uh, I feel like I've learned so much from everybody in my life, my husband being the biggest one. um, Marty, when he was wounded in 2011 and lost his eyesight. uh, He was in the military. Yeah, in the military. And he was retired. He went back to work Uh with the Department of Defense and was uh, wounded in eastern Afghanistan um, during battle with uh, terrorists. And he lost his eyesight, almost lost his life. But I got to tell you, when he came back home, And he went through rehab and through three craniotomies first, then rehab. I remember a psychologist that was talking to both of us said, Marty, I just, I don't know how you do it. You're the first person that I've actually treated here at this facility who's really come to terms and to grips with their blindness, with their disability, Mm. the way you have. Why is it different for you? What's going Mm -hmm. on with you? And my husband said, well, doc, I can't change what happened to me. Wow. And because I can't powerful. change it, yeah. I just got to move forward. So I take it as a challenge. This is my new challenge in this Great. new part of my life. And it sucks and I hate it and I want to be able to see, but I'm not going to dwell What's on it. What's the point it. in dwelling on it? It's, it's just, there's attitude. no point because yeah. then all you're going to do is spend your time thinking about it. So I love the way, I mean, obviously that childhood experience you know, instilled in you this, I'm getting a lot of curiosity coming, coming from you. <laughs> so I want to sort of, you said you were there for eight years in Saudi Arabia, yeah, is that right? roughly eight years. So when so. did you come back? So... How old were you when you came back? You're, I was 14. 14. Just and so about back 14, to California? Back to California. I, I probably wouldn't have come back so soon. My um, father had become, uh, he, he became ill. He had cancer. Mm-hmm. And so we had to come back to the United States for treatment. And uh, Saudi Arabia at that 
point in time didn't have a high school for American or British um, students. Uh, so we would have gone to boarding school. My father was trying to finish up his last three years there in the right. kingdom. He wanted to spend more time working. Uh, but so we came back to the United States. My father, of course, um, thought he had been cured, went back to Saudi Arabia. We were getting ready to leave. And then we got the call that he actually had suffered a severe setback. Mm-hmm. He died um, that year in my freshman year of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh or maybe just right before, right before my freshman year. So it might've been a little bit, it's kind of fuzzy for me, Yeah. but it was a really, uh, you know, another change in my life, a drastic change and a drastic change for my mother mm-hmm. who invested everything she could, poor thing, to try to get the right doctors for my father, went beyond the insurance. Um, he passed away. And then, so now she was a single mom you know, who did not have a college degree Mm -hmm. and now had two kids she had to take care of and get through high school, me and my brother. And, uh, and then, you know, we went back to our same little house in Montclair, California, Uh right there. So on Orchard street, I saw it just the other day (laughs) as I was driving by and, um, we were, you know, we learned how to do with a lot less. So here's a kid that basically traveled the world, me, and I, you know, had so many great experiences, grew up in a foreign land. All of a sudden, I'm back in California. My mom is dealing with very difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, she eventually, she first took a job at an, um, uh, like a retirement facility mm-hmm. home and helped out there and then ended up working in a factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she could have enough money to make ends meet and get us through school. Uh, she was just an amazing human being and worked really hard. And never was I ashamed of one job yeah, that that woman yeah. did, how much she loved us. She used to work at uh, a factory out here in California where she put uh, airplane parts together. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember I would pick her up sometimes late at night if I borrowed her car. I'd pick her up at like 1130 at night and she would just be so wiped out. That poor woman. Wow. I'd see her and all the other ladies walking yeah. out. But boy, my mom, you know. There's my politics again. My mom's like, I was debating all the ladies in the factory about this mayor and that mayor. And we don't want corruption like Latin America. Yeah. And so we always had, she was Uh always very, um, and did she push you education wise to sort of go to college and do all that stuff? Did you do that? Oh yeah, absolutely. My mother was adamant that I go to college and I mean, I took my time, boy. I, I, <laughs> I was not, I was like, I want to travel. I, I eventually, you know, I was in college then I went to Germany for a little bit and kind of lived like a vagabond there. I actually worked, um, That's so uh, cool. for food at a Irish pub in, uh, in Nuremberg, Germany. That was kind of fun. I like, I can say I literally worked for food, right? Because I had only a certain amount of money <laughs> to live off of while I was or there. Something, whatever yeah, they brought, get, okay. Bratwurst mit Brotchen, <laughs> yes. Um, haben Sie ein Bier bitte? That's what I remember. Do you Very have nice. a beer? Okay. And um, but I, you know, and then I came back, and um, of course, my life took a bunch of changes. But I finished school, and I remember as I was graduating from college, um, Frank Pine, mm-hmm. who was my very first editor and somebody I'll cherish forever, he was at the graduation, and he said, "Do you want to come work for the Daily Bulletin? I'd love to have you." And I worked at the Daily Bulletin in Ontario, California. That was my first job. Uh, that's a newspaper. Yep. It's a it's a newspaper, what kind, mi- middle local, size, daily, what was middle this? size newspaper. It used to compete um, against the uh, Riverside Press, uh-huh. and my first job was being a beat reporter in Norco, California, and I covered uh, that boy. I covered that city with all my might. They, they had to run for their money that press wow. enterprise. So that yeah. so so actually, had you thought of that before, or was it? 
the, as the, as journalism being the kind of thing you wanted to do? It was always the kind of thing I wanted to do. I was never sure I was going to do it. But did you that, think of it in, as a sort of possible job? Oh, yeah. I mean, sure, okay. sure. I mean, you know, when I was in college and the main reason was I thought, I'm going to get a degree in communications and mm-hmm. make it very vast. I'm mm-hmm. not going to just focus on journalism. Because, mm-hmm. by the way, everybody was telling me, you're never going to have a career in journalism. It's so difficult. Nobody makes any money at it. You'll yeah. you'll, you'll hate it. It's going to be a tough job. That made the challenge all the more for me. I was like, wow, really? But when I got to college, when I was at, um, actually at Cal Poly Pomona, mm-hmm. um, where I was finishing up my degree, uh, my professors came and got me. They had read a story I'd written. I uh-huh. interviewed some uh, prostitute uh-huh. on Mission Boulevard in Pomona yeah. for a school st- uh, university story. And they said, you're not going to major in communications. You're a journalist. That's um, so great just to spot that talent there. Yeah. And then I and I, I thought, well, that's what I really loved. And I remember yeah. that's what I talked about with voice being the voice for the voiceless. Yes. yes. Because everybody has so a let's story. Just, so, so why everybody did you? Does. Yeah, but... That interest in people. So, what you you did you see her? You know, I don't know daily and think. Yeah. What is her story? Is that yeah, what that was about? I, that's that's what it was. Her name was Bobby, uh-huh. and every day I'd go down Mission Boulevard on my way to catch the highway to school. I would see this woman. She had this scraggly red hair. She was disheveled usually. Yeah. Uh, I always saw men picking her up. And I always felt so sorry for her. I never looked down on her. I just always wondered what was going on with this woman. What drove mm-hmm. her to the streets? I would think that way about all the women. But it just so happened that Bobby was always on a corner that I would pass at a particular time in the morning. Wow. But you see, a lot of people would do that and think that, but not then follow up on it like you did. <laughs> that's what's I so can't... great. But that's, a journal- that's why they're right to say, you know, this woman is a journalist. Well, I can't help myself. I couldn't help myself. I, you know... I saw so many different people picking her yeah. up all the time, and I felt that there was a story there that needed to be told. There was so much prostitution in Pomona, in our area, and it wasn't just women like Bobby, who were obviously, she was probably around 30 years old or so, but um, there were a lot of young girls being trafficked. Mm-hmm. Even back then, there was a string of trafficking in mm-hmm. the area and prostitution, and I thought, you know... Our job, my job is not to sit, even in college, would not be to sit behind a desk and have somebody hand me a press release and say, this is the story, write it. My job as a journalist, and this is what makes it so hard and exhausting, and I think it's a young person's job sometimes, (laughs) because I'm pretty exhausted, uh, is to go out there, to talk to the people, to meet them, and to get their story. That's where we're going to get the truth. We don't get the truth. It's the same reason I went to Afghanistan. It's the same reason I went to Pakistan. It's the same reason I went to Iraq. It's the reason why I, I took some pretty dangerous assignments. So did you, I, I know that there's a whole world. I mean, by the way, I'm just realizing we're definitely going to have to do part two here, Sarah, because like oh there's my so much. I love to talking we, to you, Steve. I know, it's I'm so talking fun. too much, though. You it's go. So, no, no, no. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's, um, but there's so much I really, I really want to understand. And, and you sort of skipped over a lot of things there. Um, but what I'd love to do is... I really understand how, you know, just to bring it back full circle, you talked about Pomona and the school, you know, how you started reporting on those local That's social right. issues and so on. And then you mentioned that you traveled, you went back as a journalist internationally and so yes. on. But I just bring it back to how we sort of sort of see you today. D.C. is a big focus for your reporting. That's right. What was the step that took you to D.C.? I'll tell you what it was. It's when I started, when I moved from covering the gang members on the street, mm-hmm. I asked uh, my managing editor at the time, Frank Pine, I said, there's a lot of drugs coming into our community. 
There's a lot of weapons. There's a lot of connection with the Mexican drug cartels. Can you please send me to the border to cover the U.S.-Mexico border? Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, he realized what we had done with Jamie's story, Mm -hmm. um, which took over six or seven months of reporting, probably more. And uh, he sent me to the U.S.-Mexico border, and I spent roughly about the same amount of time there discovering things I never thought I would discover, um, incursions by the Mexican military into the United States with documents to prove it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The influence of the drug cartels on both sides of the border and how Mexico and the United States were both suffering from this narco state. And when I started covering that, there was a young, at the time there was a reporter, (laughs) he called me the young one. Um, It was Jerry Seeper at the Washington Times. Mm -hmm. And he started to send me emails and they were really funny. And he said, you know, I can't keep up with you. I'm an old guy. I just can't keep up with you on the border because he had covered a lot of border stories. Uh, And eventually, the Washington Times offered me a job. Oh, wow. uh, Through him? Through him because he just said I was – and I had been breaking a lot of stories at at that point. We had won a lot of awards for the stories that we were working on. And then I brought in other journalists to work on big projects Mm -hmm. you know, that focused on the border, focused on Mexico. And eventually I ended up in Washington, D.C. But I tell you, before we conclude this, uh, when I got to Washington, the deal was this. Uh, Jerry Seeper still covers the border, but I want to go to the war zones. I want to cover Uh Al-Qaeda, and all of the other issues that we were seeing in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, and I wanted to be the Pentagon correspondent for the Washington Times, and oh, wow. they agreed to it. So and that's, that's how you had all that? Okay. And that's how it started. And then when you came back, you went, came back to D.C.? Yeah, so I was stayed in I mean, DC. How, what I'm really I, intrigued by is, like, uh, you know, how, do you, how you got your teeth into this whole deep state Mueller thing where you just got so into that in a fantastic way. I'm going to tell you what happened. Um, I was covering, like I said, you know, Iraq, Al Qaeda for years. I mean, from 2007 on until I was in Iraq in 2015, uh, covering the Yazidis Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Islamic state. I went up to, um, Shingal. I, I was there while ISIS was still in control of the city. Uh, and, John Solomon had gone to, I came back from Iraq, John Solomon had gone to Circa with Sinclair News Group, Mm -hmm. and I had worked with him at the Washington Times at one point. So he gave me a call and said, hey, Sarah, will you come, you know, to Sinclair and to Circa? I'm going to be starting up this new startup, Mm -hmm. and I'd love for you to come here. And I said, well, can I still cover the same stories I'm covering? And he said, yeah, sure, you can. And maybe a little bit more, you know, there's going to be the election and this and that. And what got me into Russia, and I'll make a long story short, was... Really, when I started, I I fell into the campaign, covering the campaign for a bit, and when everything started to sprout up with Michael Flynn, because I had known known Lieutenant General Flynn since he was the J-2 at the Pentagon, Uh Uh, and I had been in Afghanistan when he was there. I know how people felt about him. I knew that there was a lot of animus between him and certain people within the CIA uh, based on stories that I had covered, and I saw this full-fledged like move to get General Flynn. And at that point in time, I thought, well, what's really going on here? Mm -hmm. What's the bigger story here? And that's when I stumbled onto uh, Andrew McCabe. That's so amazing. That's the whole... 
Genesis that was... then. It's the same curiosity yeah. that, that made you go up to Bobby that's on right. the street. You know, it's the same instinct, isn't it? It was this exact same instinct. So interesting. And well, that's this... what took me there. So, I mean, and then every, you know, McCabe, I mean, I don't need to. No, repeat. I mean, this is why I say I'm not being funny. We do need to stop there, but I'm absolutely determined to, to get to, a, you know, do this properly. Part two. So we, we oh. really learn about all of that. Oh, I'd love because to. Because what, but I, t- I just want to. You know, to say one thing as we close, which is, so that beginning question, are you a positive populist? Okay, fine. Definitely positive. We got that. And mm-hmm. I, and, and you spoke about the populism thing with some misgivings in terms of where that's going. But I, and I think that's reasonable in terms of the politics. But what I've got from you is when it comes to reporting, when it comes to journalism, that's right. you are absolutely a populist because you are for the people. You that's are trying it. to report the Th- stories. That's it. Of the people, yeah, and in that and sense, questioning the the system and the establishment, and that is that's so populism, central. Exactly. yeah, and that's and that's what I'm saying. I mean, I I know when I when I started this, and and that is essential to me. You know, we have to understand both sides. We have to look at the damage that can be done too, right? We have to look at every issue yeah. and every policy angle, but it is about the people, and it is about what is important to the people, and and getting those stories out and. That's the true essence of being an American. It's that freedom. It's that liberty that you don't see anywhere else in the world. No matter where I've gone, I've never seen anything as magnificent as this nation. And the fear for me, I think the fear for me over the recent months is where are we going and what have we done? Because we've chosen to ignore what's been happening in our school systems. We haven't paid attention to the people Mm -hmm. that are indoctrinating right? Our kids. And I think it's time for me and everyone else to start paying attention to this because there is a shift right now in our country. Mm -hmm. I I still see it as half full because I believe in this country and what it stands for in the foundation, which is the constitution. I don't think anybody's going to be able to overcome that. Although that's just my, that's my positive nature. But, but I think we can't afford to ignore it. Wow. That's well, seeking the truth and telling people the truth is a huge part of that. So as I say, to be continued, Sarah Carter, thank you so much. That was so fun and so great. And I just was so excited to hear it. I mean, you've got me really, you know, really fired up about this. I can't wait for the next next part two. It's the first time we've done a part two of this podcast. There's a there's a lot there that we need to talk about. And I really, really appreciate the time we've had today. Steve, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.